Welcome to The Miller's Tale, Episode 2. My name's Mike Whitaker, and I'll be your host for what is the second episode of the Miller's Tale podcast. Oh my, um, I suspect that nobody thought they'd be hearing that any time soon, and certainly I didn't think I was going to be saying it. So, welcome back. It's only been about five years, and here we all are again. In case anybody hadn't already figured out, the major reason I'm doing this is that the Meeples and Miniatures podcast is on a... Three months sabbatical while everyone recharges their batteries and swelters in the summer heat. And I get withdrawal symptoms and I'm kind of hoping that some of you do too. So this is partly for me, this is partly for those of you who need something to listen to while you paint. And well, here we all are again. So we're going to do much what I set out to do in episode one. So we'll have a look at the hobby news for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'll lift from the regular Meeples features a look at what I've been doing over the past couple of weeks. We'll have a blog watch, if I can find something interesting online that I want to talk about, and then we'll have a main feature, which might be review, might be a bit of pontificating on some aspect of the hobby, or something like that. At the point I'm recording this intro, I haven't decided yet, but rest assured by the time I get there, I will have. So, for now, let's pause while I go and find in my music library the bumpers I used last time, and start with the hobby news. So let's start with a little something picking up on a Meeples review from a couple of episodes ago in which we all raved an awful lot about Seventh Continent and probably frustrated a lot of you because the Kickstarter had finished and nobody was going to be able to buy it. Well, it turns out that's not the case because those lovely people from Sirius Pulp in France have decided that they're going to reopen the Pledge Manager for a number of reasons. But it does mean that if you go to their Kickstarter page, you can now order yourself, if you're quick, a copy of the Seventh Continent base game and, I suspect, any of the expansions that tickle your fancy. As we said at the time, it's a pretty fabulous game, thoroughly recommended if you like things in the spirit of Wall of Firetop Mountain or similar pack your path to adventure things only writ large. It's a just basically a brilliant game. There's there's no excuse not to own it if you like that kind of thing. It's not cheap, but it has that thing that I bang on about and love, which is replay value. You should be able to get plenty of time over it. The gameplay does say five to a thousand hours and I don't think it's kidding. So there you go. Go to the Kickstarter, look for Seventh Continent and fairly soon, if not already, you should be able to sign up to the Pledge Manager again and buy yourselves a copy. (laughs) 
So, for those of you mourning the passing of dystopian wars, I have good news. For those of you who've missed it, those nice folks at Wayland Games have just announced the War Cradle Classics range from War Cradle Studios, which I believe is them under another badge. They are basically announcing 19 items, the first two editions of Dystopian Wars, and I quote, with many more waves incoming in the future, covering products all the way from Firestorm Armada, Firestorm Planetfall, and more. Available, I would assume, from their website. But they are going to be limited numbers. So if you are... Uh, a fan of dystopian wars which i know some of our listeners are certainly some of our club are you need to keep an eye on the wayland games newsletter and keep an eye out for pre-orders so you don't miss out a couple of bits of news about futsal miniatures friends of the meeples podcast first off they have announced a small range of shield maidens for the Dark Ages. Now, for those of you who've seen or listened to various us rave about the Bad Squido Freya's Wrath Kickstarter, these go very nicely with that. There's a pack of four shield maidens and a very nice banner bearer and command stand, both of which look very nice indeed so heartily recommended if you want a little variety to your dark ages force secondly in case you missed it on our website and by the way this is my podcast so i'm allowed to do this we're very happy to announce that footsaw are the headline sponsors for this year's Harrywood wargame show which is on september the 2nd which is a sunday at the crescent in peterborough as previous years rest of your information can be found at heroidwargames.co.uk and hopefully Futsal will be there with some gangs of Rome demos, some new figures and so on and so forth. Uh, we've also just announced a Gaslands tournament which is being run by Mike Hutchison himself as well as a Saga tournament run by Andy from Ainstie and the usual Magic and X-Wing. So that's Heroid. You've heard me go on about it enough. This year's is happening. Uh, we're still looking for games if anybody's interested. Drop us a note on the website. I probably wouldn't have bothered mentioning this one except for the fact that I know there are quite a few folks out there who are rather fond of the works of H.P. Lovecraft, especially when turned into game form. With that in mind then, if you haven't noticed yet, the folks from Cool Mini or Not have announced a new board game which is called Cthulhu Death May Die. Now, as I said, ordinarily, it's another Cthulhu build game. There's plenty out there, but there are a couple of things going for it. One is it has the usual collection of interesting miniatures that the likes of Cool Mini or Not tend to produce. And the other is it has one ridiculous miniature in much the same way that the folks for the Joan of Arcs game produced that monster dragon. Only this is just, oh my goodness. It is for the finale of the game, it's available as a Kickstarter extra only. It is a 56 centimetre tall model of Great Cthulhu Rising from the Depths. 
and apparently, as I understand it, the base of the figure is sufficiently large that it is basically the board for the final scenario. <laughs> I would strongly recommend going and having a trawl around the various groups on Facebook, etc., and reading people's comments. It's not something that greatly interests me, other than the fact that it's just a monster, ridiculous miniature. It's not yet clear to me how the game's going to work, whether it's going to be worth having... But I figured that, given there are folks around here with, with interest in the Cthulhu Mythos, and it is a ridiculously large figure, it at least rated a mention. Anyway, that's it for the news section. Time for the usual little collection of what have I been up to, what have I bought, what have I painted. Um, hmm. Not a lot would be the short answer to that, I think. Um, really been kind of a busy couple of weeks but I have got a bunch of Annie Norman's Shield Maidens from the original batch not the Freya's Watch Kickstarter as well as some footsore late Roman cavalry back from my painter who for contractual reasons I'm not allowed to name who has done a wonderful job. I decided a while ago that one of the things I was going to do for figures that I got commission painted was I was going to base them myself so there was at least some part of me in the figures so they're still sitting around waiting to be based but they are very very nice indeed I'm very pleased with them other than that from Tom at the Club who has been doing a little bit of painting for me as well I have a bunch of elite miniatures Spanish guerrilla for the Peninsula War sitting waiting to be based on pennies for sharp practice and he's sitting on a bunch of my British and rifles which should mean I should have a combined British-Spanish force fairly soon which I'm rather looking forward to. Game-wise the club's been playing Gaslands inevitably we have a club Gaslands tournament we also have a club of pikemen's lament tournament which I'm doing about as dismally as usual in unlike the Gaslands that I'm actually I have won my table for the last two scenarios, although I did get rather beaten up this week, which is a bit of a shame. Purchases-wise, um, I've not spent any money. This is worrying. Well, my wife probably wouldn't think so, but no. As far as I can remember, I've not spent any money on Wargame stuff this past couple of weeks, because, frankly, I do actually have quite a bit of stuff to be getting on with and lots of shiny new stuff coming in from the painters. So I guess that probably scratches the itch just as well as anything else. So that's me, and I don't have anyone else to hand over to, so that'll be it, and we'll be on to Blogwatch. Blogwatch is where I talk about some little snippet of online bloggery or podcastery, are those words, that takes my fancy. And this time out, it's going to be quite a short mention because as yet there's not a great deal to see, but friend of the Meeples podcast, Jonathan Yingling, has introduced us to a new YouTube channel called Little Wars TV courtesy of the folks from his war games club army group york over in the states 
Now, they're basically producing video series combining actual history and games. There is a trailer up on YouTube. Go to littlewallstv.com to find it. And it appears to be quite fun. They look to be at least as completely insane a bunch of people as most of the folks I hang out with to play war games, which bodes well. Production qualities look pretty reasonable. Um, the outtakes reel suggests that they're um, at least as prone to corpsing each other as the Meeple's crew are. In general, it's a historical war games video channel. What's not to like? I really do suggest you check it out. The first episode appears on July the 12th, which, unless I put a shift on and get this out tonight, will be before I actually get this podcast released. been thinking, which is kind of the point of this bit of the podcast, so I'm not going to apologise for it. Something that's cropped up quite a bit in conversations of late is the concept of rules being simple versus being simplistic. So so I thought I'd have a bit of a bit of a muse about the concept of complexity in rules. Now, now obviously this sort of kind of goes hand in hand with something that cropped up in a in a passing conversation on a on a Meeple's podcast a while back on the subject of first, second, third, fourth, fifth generation rules. And there was a point somewhere about what I think we decided was essentially second generation, which was the things like War Games Research Group Ancients, where, where Don Featherston and Terence Wise are first generation, where there seemed to be this drive and this urge to simulate things down to the last detail. I'm sort of reminded in passing of a comment of Donald Featherston's in the original Skirmish Wargaming book about how the rules were a time and motion study of the armed man throughout the ages. And there's a degree to which things at about the point of second generation did seem to sort of strive to simulate every little minute detail down down to the last last micron of, of, of what your your man could do. And I think it's something that we've noticed over the course of the next two or three generations of rules, where, you know, third generation is the likes of WAB and maybe DBM, and then fourth generation gets us into non-IGO-UGO rules, like I ain't been shot mum and things like that, and then fifth gen is where we are now. Um, I'm Okay, I'm waffling a bit here, but I make no apology for the fact that it's quite a nice way of looking at rules. Anyway, what I'm getting at is that there seems to have been a drift of late away from those rule sets that seek to have a table for everything and model not quite the effect of a single bullet, but seem bound by an attempt to simulate what happens, as opposed to handling things by abstractions. Now, now it seems to me that simplicity and 
abstractions go a bit hand in hand for the simple reason that the the concept of warfare is is inherently not simple as it stands there are an awful lot of variables and if you want to write a set of rules that models every one of those variables then then you wind up perforce with a set of rules which are somewhat complex the thing is that i think one of the things that rules writers seem to have got better at well there are two things one is people seem to have discovered ways round massive lookup tables and other means of modeling results by dint of clever dice mechanics and the like you don't see in for example wargames research group much in the way of that kind of thing basically you roll a dice of some size or other uh, look it up on a table and stuff happens whereas if you look at well any number of rules in this era let's let's set the likes of i ain't being shot on the side given it has has a lookup table and it's probably quite unique in that these days but you find a lot of systems where the randomization mechanic is inherently simple and in some cases also clever but it's something that's easy to teach easy to learn and doesn't require you to keep diving back to the rules to find out how you do things um, as i've said in the past i think my two favorite examples of this late are probably the AFV combat mechanic that the Lardies have used since I Ain't Been Shopman started, namely that of opposed dice pools, and the skill resolution mechanic that Dreadball uses, which is one of Jake Thornton's rather nicer inventions. It's something you learn and then just know to apply everywhere. Now that's one thing. The other thing that comes with that, and it's quite, it's quite noticeable, is there seems to be a movement away from detailed simulation to finding an abstraction. Now, the obvious one that I've banged on about a lot is shock. Shock is essentially an abstraction of wounds, morale, and things like that into a, an arbitrary measure of how well your unit is functioning as a fighting concern. Now, obviously, you could model that in insane detail by saying that Corporal Smith is wounded, um, Private Jones is concussed, um, and Lance Corporal Smithers and Private Walker are carrying in a foxhole because they don't want to be shot at again, or you can just say the unit's accumulating pre-shock and be done with it. And there are, there are similar mechanisms to that in other rule sets which seem to be becoming more prevalent. Um, and I actually quite like that because it makes what it does as i think i've said in the past it makes the game simple without being simplistic there are still a lot of challenges in well any of the loading systems that you shock any similar systems that use that kind of abstraction of ability to function that means you're still presented with the command challenge of, of how to rally your troops, how to how to make them work better again, or how to do what you can with the dwindling resources at your ability without having to sit there and bookkeep the living daylights out of it. 
and I think that's one of the things that's making me more and more interested in the hobby as a as a thing at the moment just because it's possible to see see this kind of thing actually work it's the thing that I think delighted me the first time I played a Lardy rule set was that I tried something that I felt should give a specific result based on what I knew of how an action would happen in real life and the abstractions combined to produce produce something that was a believable convincing result you get the same thing with um, loads of other systems the, the one I'm particularly thinking of was um, doing a classic assault on a, on a building um, with three British sections and basically pounding the living daylights out of it with two um, until the um, target was pinned which is another abstraction and then just wading in with the bayonet and, and clearing the building out and it's a, it's a measure of the success of, success of the abstractions there that for all that the detail is not present in the calculations you do the end result looks like what would happen if the detail was there and the other nice thing that happens is that you can if it if it suits the way you play a game you can tell yourself stories um, I've told before the story of um, Colin in our club having a light bulb moment when he used a couple of leader actions, you know, I ain't being chopped on to have a leader charge back down the lane, screaming his lungs off for smoke from the two-inch mortar, which was down down um, 12 inches down the lane, cowering behind a brewed-up Sherman. And, again, the thing that I like about the Lardy's rules and similar rule sets to that, this isn't this isn't a, an ongoing, for all that I'm a huge Lardy's fan, this is not an ongoing homage to just the Lardy's. There are a number of rule sets that do this. It allows you to step back and if you want to, and I'm pretty unrepentant in the fact that if you've read my Doc's Brit campaign narratives, you'll know I love telling the story of the battle. You can do this based on by, by supplying your own interpretation for the abstraction. And I think that's brilliant. I think that's the thing that is making the hobby as good as it is today. Now, one of the interesting things that did occur to me while I was thinking about this last night is that it seems to have coincided with a simplification of combat in that you're getting an awful lot more rule sets which are... What's the word I'm looking for here? Um, designed for smaller units. Take, for example, well, sharp practice, uh, water tanker, chain of command from the Lardy side of things, um, bolt action, all those things that, that Mike Hobbs christens RPG light. Essentially, what you can call, you know, they're, they're, they're a squad based, handful of box of figures based, essentially, uh, games. And one of the things that's, that's I'm pondering is the question of is it the fact that part of this drive towards simplification and abstraction leads you to wanting to play things with smaller groups of figures they seem to have come along at the same time but i don't think so because um the the shock the shock abstraction mechanism and and mechanisms like it work just as well with bigger battles let's look at look at i ain't being shot one which is designed to be company level 
The trick, I think, is your one of your abstra abstractions is that you aren't dealing with the individual man when you go up to larger scales. Something like um, sharp practice, etc., etc., etc. Your 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 figure. Yes, your figures are based in six, eight-man stands, but you treat casualties, etc., etc., individually. Um, the upshot of this is you end up with, for the sake of argument, six or seven, maybe, units and three or four big men. Now, it's perfectly possible to play something like I Ain't Been Shot Mum with, say, two platoons, so six sections and an HQ section, and half, four or five big men on each side. And and you've got, essentially, the same level of, ah, new term, granularity of of the battle. It's just that your your grains, if you like, are bigger. You're attempting to use those seven units to represent a below-strength company rather than the next size of unit down. And by rights, there should be nothing to stop someone. Um, and we do see it done. People writing rules which go for that, abs go for abstractions, go for simple without being simplistic, but do not at the same time reduce the scale of the problem to the point where you are, to use Neil's favourite phrase, uh, half a dozen men taking a flag for a walk. There's nothing to stop. I mean, I ain't been Shopman proves it perfectly well. Uh, there are other systems of a similar scale. Um, I, a couple of the ACW rules that I played while I was in the States. Again, the effective size of a unit is quite a few figures. But people seem happiest with somewhere between the sort of six to ten, six to ten lumps on each side. And if you can make your abstractions work at the one lump size, with whatever you have to do to your abstractions to make that work. Now, for example, at the level of a chain of command squad, and even possibly at the level of a chain of command platoon, you are very much at the mercy of micro things in the terrain, and the fact that Corporal Jones has just dropped the piet down a rabbit hole, or um, the sergeant has caused everyone to stop because he's seen the sunlight glint off something in the hedgerows, and so your movement is not something that you have control over. Whereas you got to a bigger abstraction level, and the um, that detail becomes pretty much irrelevant, but you're still you still have to find ways of deciding how you want to abstract say, movement, such that it reflects the fact that you still don't entirely have perfect control over a battalion, or whatever. Suppose you're fighting something where one lump is a battalion, uh, if it's a massive, great corpse-level, or, or that kind of size, Napoleonic or ACW or something. You've still got to work out an abstraction for movement that makes it challenging and interesting. But you're... Abstractions potentially have to be different. You have to at least understand that the problem plays out differently at one scale to that which it does as an, does another. 
But essentially, I don't see why it isn't possible, without destroying someone's enjoyment, to play something that is at the same time large in terms of what size of conflict it represents, and at the same time simple without being simplistic. Um, so, um, yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking, and I appreciate this might be a little bit disjointed, uh, mostly because I'm, well, I'm not quite making it up as I go along, but I'm trying to garner together a bunch of thoughts that have been bouncing around my head for really quite a while, into one, well, semi-cohesive hole anyway. So, yeah, that's that, I guess. So, let's wrap up, shall we? Miller's Tale Episode 2. Now, hmm, hopefully Episode 3 will arrive a little sooner, in that I'm planning to do one every couple of weeks over the summer until Meeples starts up again. So, as ever, if you have comments, please drop me a note via the blog or via email. My email address is podcast at the hyphen mill hyphen house dot org dot uk it's been great to talk again i'm very conscious now that i'm actually editing this well at the point i'm recording this now i have edited everything about this i'm very conscious that i don't um and er as much as i used to and clearly waffling for three hours on a wednesday evening for the last however many years it is has improved my ability to make up nonsense off the top of my head without pausing, hesitating, or otherwise breaking the rules of just a minute. So, um, it only remains for me to say um, cheerio and roll good dice. The Miller's Tale is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License.